It has been a number of years uh, since I've been here. Uh, some of you might not recognize me. I colored my hair gray since the last time I was here, and I even put on a few pounds also trying to disguise my appearance. Um, but uh, delighted to be back with you. Uh, let's pause for a moment and just pray together and commit our time to the Lord. Father God, uh, our hearts are just full as we get to hear your word as we have, as we get to sing your word and worship you in song. And now, Father, continue our worship as we dive into a portion of the word of God that might be familiar to us. But uh, this morning, we again invite the Spirit of God to be actively involved in our hearts and lives as we uh, work our way through a familiar text. Father, ultimately, um, uh, we would pray, and I in particular would pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, and that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted for who he is, and that in all things, he would receive glory. Uh, Thank you for this time to celebrate your word, your truth, and the oneness that we enjoy because of him. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 I suspect that uh, all of us in this room have special days that we quickly um, uh, think about. And some are very familiar To us, of course, like birthdays, they roll around with uh, increasing regularity, uh, it seems, and faster and faster as you get older and older. Uh, Anniversaries, uh, the birth of a a newborn. Uh, Today happens to be a a birthday of uh, one of my granddaughters turning 10 uh, today. Uh, So there are dates that are significant that we remember. And And uh, this date, uh, April 24, is very significant to me, um, and it has been for the past 22 years um, for reasons which uh, I have a lot of mixed emotions, but it was 22 years ago on this day that 3 o'clock in the morning I received a phone call from my mother, and she told me that my father had graduated to heaven. And uh, so my mother lives in uh, Hanover, Pennsylvania, lived in Hanover. And uh, so, of course, I made my way up there to be with her uh, as quickly as I could. And while I was there at my mother's, at her cottage, I got a phone call from my wife um, back in Lancaster. And uh, you know how you answer the phone sometimes and you can tell immediately when you hear someone's voice, that something's not right, and there's probably not good news coming. And uh, that was the case with this phone call. My wife had been having some physical tests, uh, some difficulties, and she uh, told me that the doctor had just called her and uh, informed her that there were uh, numerous abnormalities and some tests that she had. And to make a long story short, uh, she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer, and um, uh, died a little over a year afterwards. Uh, so April 24 has a lot of uh, a lot of connections for me. 
the birth of a granddaughter, the death of a wife, uh, which became uh, real to me, uh, the death of my father, you know, and, and so dates are important. Timing is important. Uh, last Sunday, we celebrated Easter, uh, the resurrection of our Savior. Um, so we're one week after the celebration of the resurrection of the Savior, but I want to do something this morning uh, that has to do with a date in the Bible that takes us back in time to two weeks before Jesus died. Now, maybe you're familiar, or you've seen it on some TV shows. What they'll do is they show something that's happening, and then they'll flash on the screen two weeks earlier or three days earlier, and then it begins to unfold all the events up to the current television story. Well, in essence, that's what I want to do. I want to take us back two weeks prior to what we celebrated last week. This event is found in John's Gospel, chapter 12, if you'd like to begin to make your way there. And we're going to talk about a couple of individuals who are certainly uh, no strangers to those of us who uh, have been well-read in Scriptures. And I'd love to uh, take familiar stories and dive a little bit deeper in them and uh, see if there are some, some uh, other nuggets that we can dig out. And I, I hope that will be the case today. And we're focusing on this passage in John chapter 12 at uh, three individuals in particular, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, um, siblings, and an encounter that they had with Jesus. And the disciples are also in the context of this passage. So allow me just to uh, set the context real quickly for you so that we only have to read about eight verses, and then we can jump in uh, to... Our, our passage in John 12. So the timing of this, in the previous chapter, Jesus had come to the town of Bethany for the express purpose of raising Lazarus from the dead. And if you recall anything about that, that story, you know that Jesus had heard, he had been informed that his friend Lazarus had died, Martha had sent for him. Jesus arrives a few days after Lazarus was buried. And uh, Jesus and Martha have a fascinating conversation, not only about the death of Lazarus, but the, the heart of that conversation was about resurrection. And he asked her if she believed in the resurrection, that there would be a resurrection. And she said, yes. And you remember that Jesus proclaimed in that conversation, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though they're dead, that they'll live again. Now, Martha and then Mary, her sister, they had no idea what was about to occur. 
And Jesus insisted that they go to the tomb where Lazarus was buried. And then Jesus gives this odd instruction, roll the stone away from the tomb. And Martha tries to talk him out of it. You remember the story. She said, Lord, he's been in the tomb for a few days. He stinks. Bodies decay in the the arid temperatures in the Middle East, and uh, Jesus would have none of it. And, And the tomb is opened, and he calls Lazarus to come forth. And he does. Tell him to take the grave clothes off of him, and Lazarus is alive, having been dead, buried in that tomb for a couple of days. Now, here's the connection. I have a holy hunch that that day when Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the tomb, he was thinking ahead to what was going to be happening a week later. He was facing his own death, burial, and anticipating his resurrection. It was a foretaste of what Jesus himself was going to witness and experience. And what Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were going to experience and witness that day, they would also see and know that Jesus was, in fact, the resurrection and the life. It's another message, and so I don't want to go too far into it, but we know that in that passage in chapter 11, the shortest verse in the Bible is found. And what is that shortest verse? Jesus, what? Wept. Why? He knew he was raising Lazarus. It wasn't that he missed his friend and he was never going to get to see him again. So why was he weeping? My holy hunch is he was weeping because there were a lot of people standing there watching what was unfolding. And Jesus realized that many of those individuals did not understand that Jesus himself was the resurrection and the life. I don't think Jesus was crying about a lost friend who he was going to be enjoying fellowship with later that day. I think he was crying for those who were far from him and had not embraced him. Now, that's the context and that's the setting for what unfolds in chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Because this group, the disciples, Jesus... Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are all together again. This time, it's a celebratory dinner, and Jesus is the guest of honor. So let's pick up in John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And Mary therefore took a pound or about a pint, of expensive ointment made from pure nard. We call it spike nard. And anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But, verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was also 
about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment sold for why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, let's take a few moments. You've heard this story, I suspect, many times. You've read it. You know that the main characters, or at least a little bit about them, I suppose. But let's park here for a few minutes and, and kind of break this text down into, into three different components. We'll, we'll talk about the dinner, and then we'll talk about a disruption that uh, occurred. And then we'll talk about a, a, a dialogue that Jesus had with the disciples and uh, everyone who was listening. So let's begin in the first three verses and talk about this dinner that was given in Jesus' honor. And it was a celebration because Lazarus had been resurrected from the dead. If you know anything about Martha, you know that she was very busy. She loved to serve. She was preparing a meal. And Lazarus and the others were reclining at the table, enjoying fellowship together, talking, laughing. We have no idea what the topic of conversation was. But all of a sudden, we find Mary doing something that was unusual. Unusual to us and unusual even to some of the people uh, in the room that day. Now, let's just put a quarter in the meter for a moment and let's park here. There's a reputation that Mary had acquired in the Gospels. Mary is mentioned in, in three different narrative passages, but in each one of those three passages, she's doing the same thing. She was known by reputation as someone who always wanted to be at the feet of Jesus. And so one time, Martha was preparing dinner for all the disciples and everyone, and Mary was just sitting at the feet of Jesus, wanting to hear everything that he was talking and teaching about. Martha was so upset that she came in, and she told Jesus, gave Jesus instructions, tell Mary to come out and help me in the kitchen. Well, Jesus made it clear that Mary made the better decision. Mary could sit at the feet of Jesus and enjoy time with him. Martha was consumed with preparing an elaborate meal when all Jesus and the disciples needed was a simple crockpot dinner. They didn't need a Lancaster County buffet. The second time we find Mary at the feet of Jesus is in the previous chapter when Lazarus died. When Mary finds out that Jesus has arrived, she runs out to him. She falls down at the feet of Jesus. And she asks Jesus, why didn't you come sooner? Where were you? If you had come here sooner, then my brother would still be alive. Jesus, interestingly, doesn't say a word to Mary. Here we are again now 
Mary is at the feet of Jesus, but this time she is going to take a very precious ointment called spikenard. And it was an imported, um, it was an imported fragrance. Uh, the closest place to Israel where it would come from is India. Now, there's spikenard in here. I want you to come up afterwards if you've never smelled it. Just take the lid off. You don't need to take the container out. You'll be able to uh, smell the fragrance, okay? But I want you to know what it smells like. It was made from the root of a plant in India. It was a very thick substance, and it was then placed in a jar, and it was very expensive. Not only was it imported, it took a lot of time to prepare it, and then they had to have a special jar to keep it in. Now, if you've ever seen a piece of cheap pottery, you know that if it's not glazed and, and such, which they didn't do in Israel in those days, it was porous. So you don't want to put a very precious ointment in a porous jar because it leaks. It soaks into the clay, and then it actually leaks. So you have to have a special container to put it in, and I just happen to have one with me today. This is an alabaster jar, and this alabaster jar is about 35 to 3,600 years old, about 1,400 B.C is when archaeologists have dated this. It is made of alabaster, which is a stone. And they had to store this precious ointment in stone jars because it would not seep into the stone. None was lost. Now, what did they do with this precious ointment? Because it's going to be the subject of the disruption in just a few verses. It was primarily saved and used for burial practices. In the Middle East, the custom was and continues to be that within one day of a person's death, they were buried. No embalming, only the Egyptians embalmed. And so, because of the heat, the temperature, the climate, bodies would quickly begin to smell. Remember I said that was Martha's concern when Jesus wanted to open her brother's grave. He's been in the grave for a couple of days. It's going to stink. And so they would use these aromatic spices and ointments on a body to prepare it for burial so that the stench was not as bad. Now, about a 12-ounce container, this is not 12 ounces, but about a 12-ounce container, which was the equivalent of a Roman pound, um, would cost around 300 denarii, okay? Never seen me move that fast, have you, Pastor? Yeah. See, I, I don't even remember what I just said. Uh, I was, uh, my, my heart is going, going like, uh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, and I just took years off my life when I saw, <laughs> when I saw that 3,600-year-old uh, uh, artifact rolling away. Uh, 
the stone was rolling away, actually, I guess. So, uh, see, professors can have a sense of humor. They're, they're, they're not all as boring as snot, um, although some are. Uh, I just don't want to be one of them. Uh, so, she has this very expensive ointment, which is being saved for the death of someone in the family. She brings out the vial, and she opens it, and she pours some on Jesus' feet. One of the other gospels says she also anointed his head, which was very common for guests of honor or sometimes rabbis. Uh, but they would just put a drop or two, you know, not, not an entire bottle. But she poured some on his feet, and it's so aromatic when you smell it. You'll see what I mean. That it, it immediately, when you pour it out in the open, you can smell it throughout the whole house. Not only does she do that, but then she takes her hair, and she uses her hair to wipe his feet. Now, women in the Middle East don't do that. Their hair, their head is always covered. And so... Uh, everyone is, is kind of taken back. It's, it, it's very uncommon. It was uncommon because this was such a, present, uh, a precious fragrance, and it was, uh, it, it was very, very valuable. And, and then on top of that, she, um, she wipes, wipes her hair on his feet to dry his feet after she anoints them. Now, what, what was this really about? What was she doing? Well, for Mary, this was an act of worship. This was an, an authentic act of worship that was actually costing her a significant amount of money, even to open it and to use any of it. For a purpose like this was costly. She was anointing the feet of her Savior in appreciation for the fact that he had resurrected her brother and anticipation, believing that he too was the resurrection and the life, that Jesus was going to die. Jesus understood why she did what she did. There's an interesting passage in the Old Testament which talks about the, the, the worship costing us something. And we're not going to turn to it or take time, but go back and don't take my word for it. Go back to 2 Samuel 24. It's at the end of David's life. David makes a serious error in wanting to count how many troops he has. And um, God was not happy with him. God said in this unusual passage, he tells David, there, there will be a consequence because what you did was sin. And, and it's so unusual because God gave David three options to pick from for the consequences of his sin. I, I don't know about you, but I never got, con I never got to pick my, my punishment. Okay, but God said there can be three years of famine in the land. There can be three months of you fleeing from your enemies. Or there can be three days of a plague in the land. David said, I'll take option number three. And the text says in 1 Samuel 24 that there were 70,000 Israelites who died. David is just heartbroken. And he wants 
to offer a burnt offering for sin to God. And so he goes to a man by the name of Aruna, and he asks him if he can buy his threshing floor, his ox that pulls the threshing sled, which was made out of wood, and build an altar and offer a burnt offering. Aruna, very gracious man, says, King David, please just take it. It's yours. David says, no. He said, I'm not just going to take it and go back and read the text. And David makes this declaration. And you've heard it. It's in a couple of places in the scriptures, including the Psalms. And David says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment, because there's a really important principle here. Authentic worship costs us something. If we want it to be authentic worship, it needs to have some kind of price tag. I think Mary understood that. And it did cost her something. You're going to see ways in which it cost her in just a moment. We already read it. But there was a price that she paid. When she broke that seal and poured some of the spikenard on Jesus' feet, her deed was done in humility. It was at great personal cost, not just financially, but now she is going to be rebuked for what she has done. But such a gift was such a, a worthy expression of the deep gratitude and devotion and her profound love for the Savior. But not everyone agreed with what she did. And so there was a disruption. Judas is the one who is identified here in the passage who starts that disruption. If you like Bible trivia, this is the very first place recorded in Scripture where Jesus, Judas says anything. And it did not turn out well for him. Uh, what is fascinating, though, to me, is when you compare the Gospels, Judas was the one who spoke the words. But both Matthew and Mark expand on this a bit. And allow me just to read a couple of verses from Mark chapter 14, because all of the other disciples were thinking the same thing, and then some of them also voiced their disapproval. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. You know, I think it goes something like this. You know, that, that there's some bold person... And I, and I think that you'll be able to identify with this. If you've been in a situation who says something that everyone else is thinking, and then as soon as that person says it, then they say, yeah, I, I agree with that. And they jump on that same bandwagon, and they want to ride that wherever that bandwagon is going. But the problem is, you don't know the heart or the intent or the motive of the person who makes that first critical statement. 
And so what we learn from that is that sometimes even pure motives do not release us from the possibility of criticism or opposition. Here is Mary doing, doing an act of authentic worship for her Savior. And all of a sudden, Judas speaks up, and then others are speaking up, criticizing her, saying, this is worth 300 denarii. That's a year's wages. It's worth an entire year's wages. Average daily pay was one denarius. One denarius. And a bottle of spikenard was worth 300. This past Monday, you know what it was. May 18th, we were given a three-day extension on filing our taxes with the IRS. All of you could look at that and you could say, where did all of that money go? And you look at what you paid on taxes and, and you have that you're going through these W-2s and so on. But somewhere in that mess of filing your taxes, there was a total of what your income was for the year. But whatever that income was, let me ask you a question. How would you use that in an act of sacrificial worship for Jesus Christ? Whatever that was. 10,000, 20,000, 100,000, 200,000? Do I hear three, four? And so she received a lot of criticism, even though her motives were pure. Her labor of love brought harsh, pain-inflicting treatment from the disciples. And they accused her of wasting money. Everyone except Jesus. Um... Everyone except Jesus thought that selling the ointment and uh, giving it to the poor would be a much greater act of stewardship. Uh, but Jesus exposes in the text for us the disruption. Now, the narrative, the narrative uh, tells us why Judas wanted the money in the money bag because it was his responsibility to pay the bills. And as I said in the first service, I think this was probably the origin of treasurer's reports uh, and better bookkeeping, trying to know where money is going. Because as the treasurer of the band of disciples, he paid and uh, dispersed money for their travel, their ministry expenses, uh, but unfortunately, he paid himself also and took what was not his. Now, that's not unusual for people to be greedy. Uh, we all know that. We know that this was one of Jesus' favorite teaching topics throughout his ministry. He talked about the problem with money. And uh, to be short and sweet, he said, you know, um, you can't love God and money. Now, the United States Treasury was smart enough to try to remind us of this. And so on the back of 
these bills, we find this phrase, in God we trust. Okay? It's, it's kind of a reminder, don't put all your trust in this, put your trust in God. I looked on a $5 bill, it's on there too. I looked on a $10 bill, it's on there too. I looked on a $20 bill, it's on there too. I don't have any 50s or 100s, so I couldn't double check those. But you know where it isn't? It's nowhere on your credit cards. A lot of people have been sidetracked, been sidetracked with um, their addiction, their lust for money, material things in this world which uh, sidetrack us. Judas disregarded completely the repetitious teachings of Jesus about hypocrisy and about greed. And his selfish motives were going to be exposed. Now, we know, if you continue reading the text, we know that it's right after this occurs, Judas is, is humiliated and it's right after this occurs that Judas goes and he approaches the Sanhedrin and uh, makes a deal to help them arrest Jesus. We knew from the end of chapter 11, even before we started this passage, that there is already a warrant out for Jesus' arrest. Anyone who saw him, it was to be reported so Jesus could be arrested. Judas goes one step further than that, and he offers to make a deal for 30 of these. Now, this is, this is a shekel of Tyre. It was the purest silver coin known to have ever been minted during the first century. This is the real deal. It's, it's a museum piece. 2,000 years old. In fact, I wonder if this was one of Judas' coins. Mm. Don't know? Doesn't matter. But Judas was so seduced, so deceived, that he was willing to betray the Christ. Come up afterwards and feel free to take a look, hold these artifacts and examine them. But... If you broke it, you bought it, and if you steal it, I'm looking for you, okay? No, just kidding. Now we need to come down the home stretch here and wrap up. So how does all this end? How does all this end? Well, I'm going to flip over just for a moment to Luke, or excuse me, to Mark chapter 14, because, because the conclusion of this, I want you to see how Jesus defended and commended Mary in his dialogue, and his response is recorded in greater detail in Mark chapter 14, verses 6 to 9. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. You will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can go and do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before the burial, 
And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And here we are, 2,000 years later, seeing the prophetic word of Jesus saying, this story is going to be told over and over and over again because Mary got it. Mary knew how to live an authentic life. with pure motives. So Jesus commended her and defended her. She was the recipient of honor. But Judas and the other disciples were humiliated because of what they had said and what their attitude was. In essence, what Jesus was trying to get them to understand, it was the same thing that that he had repeated different times about judging your own heart. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, he said, judge your own heart, not another's. Paul talked about this, this issue of judging another person. And by that standard, we are judged. We do have a responsibility. There is a need for us to judge our own hearts. But you see, I don't know the heart of another person. I know some of you, by the outward appearance, some of you I recognize as former students. Of course, I know just a handful of people here, but it's not my job to know your heart. That's God's job. But it's so easy for us to judge the heart of another person person. Yes, what are, we, what are we called to judge? Uh, we are called to judge and call out actions and speech which clearly cross the line of sin, what's obvious and irrefutable. But heart issues, we don't know the intentions of a person's heart. Now, remember the timetable here. This is only six days before the Passover, according to verse 1 in the text. And Jesus perceived Mary's selfless act of worship was a symbolic acknowledgement that Jesus was soon going to die and be buried. And I believe that she understood the same thing that Martha did and the same thing that Lazarus did, that there was going to be a resurrection. But understand the significance of what Mary did in today's terms. What did that look like? I think an illustration might be better for you. I told you about my first wife at the beginning of the service. She died on May 5th, 2001. So Betsy is my second wife. And we decided to leave all the concubines at home. We didn't bring them along. Now, when my first wife died, you've been to a funeral. What's on, what's at the front of the church? What's on either side of the casket? Flowers. Bouquets of flowers, which we send to people who are dead. To honor them. 
Do you get what Mary did? She gave Jesus the flowers before he died. Ladies, would you rather would you rather have your husband come home and surprise you with flowers for no reason or would you rather have him say, "Honey, I love you so much that when you die, I'm going to cover the whole front of the church with flowers, bouquets of flowers to show how much I loved you. Which one do you think she would appreciate more? Jesus knew the answer to that. And he said, she gave me the gift while I'm still here to enjoy it. So, what, what do we take away from a, a, a passage like this? Well, here's what we take away. We realize that in that room, there are a lot of people that we can identify with. Judas, if you have ever had an ulterior motive, if you've ever said something that was selfish, if you ever wanted to do something to draw attention to you, if you ever spoke before you really thought through something, or if you were a thief or trying to swindle somebody, maybe you can identify with Judas. If so, you've got some sin issues that you need to work out there with God. The rest of the disciples, have you ever jumped on that bandwagon that someone is pulling, but you don't know where it's going? How about Mary? Have you ever done something for all the right reasons? You know that what the intention of your heart was, but you were misrepresented. Or the words of someone else who you really cared about and you invested in, like Mary and Martha and Lazarus did with the disciples. They hosted them in their home many times. And now she's the victim of criticism by all of them. It had to hurt. Or have you been the only person in the room who you know that Jesus knows the real truth behind what's going on in this particular situation? Or are you the person like, like Lazarus who's sitting there saying, wow, I still am trying to figure out how I was resurrected. How did he do that? And what's that going to look like for you and I with the promise of a resurrection, with Jesus being the resurrection and the life? Because we believe in him. We believe the gospel. And we're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for another resurrection to join him for all of eternity. So who do you identify with in this story? Who do you connect with? That may be the most important answer that we have to answer today from this passage. I love the opportunity to be in some of these places like the town of Bethany in Jerusalem to learn the customs and the cultures of the land and, and to bring things like this along that, that you can see and touch and hold. And... Uh, I think 
I think sometimes we just don't dig quite deep enough to make the Scriptures come alive for us. And maybe today is just a little taste of how we can dig a little deeper. But make sure we apply it in the right way to our lives. Let me close in prayer. Father God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that we're reading this passage with full acknowledgement that Jesus knew and was on mission with his purpose for becoming man. He understood the incarnation. He knew what was ahead of him in that next week. We look back on it now with deep appreciation. And we believe that there will be a resurrection, but only it will be a happy resurrection as it was for Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. It will only be a happy resurrection if we can be with Jesus for all of eternity. Thank you that you have made that possible for us through our faith in him. Father, we pray that if there are things that the Spirit of God has revealed in our hearts this morning that we need to address or deal with in our own lives, give us the holy boldness and courage to do so, we pray. And we ask this this morning for our good and your ultimate glory. And all God's people said.